Section 18 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13. William's English Policy, 1070 to 1087, Part 1. There were three classes in the country with whom William had to deal, and these, for convenience sake, we will take an order. To understand the policy of the conqueror towards the English, it is necessary to take a retrospect of their constitutional history. Anglo-Saxon society, by the time the English conquest was completed, consisted of four ranks, the earl or noble by birth, the churl or free by birth, the let, and the thrall or slave. Of these, the two former only were considered full free. The let was really an inferior churl, enjoying personal freedom, but holding his land of some lord upon whom he was dependent. The thrall, or slave, a small unimportant class, consisted of those who had lost their liberty for dead or other causes. The two latter classes were probably, in the west of England at least, largely recruited from the conquered Celts. The tribes thus constituted were commanded by leaders who appear under different names. Of these, the alderman was the chief magistrate in times of peace, the heritoga, the leader in war. In time, these two offices were combined in one person under the name of kining or king. The mark system, or custom of holding lands in common, had nearly if not entirely passed away and each freeman had a right to a certain portion of land granted out to him after the conquest of the country and called his allodial property. This property, the possession of which was a necessary condition of full tribal membership, he held in full ownership without any rent or service, except those included in the term trinoda necessitas, the requirements of which were to serve in the national militia, repair roads and bridges, and keep up the defenses of the country. What remained after this allotment was called the folk land, and this could not be granted out to any without the consent of the whole tribe, given in its gamote or assembly. If so granted, it was termed bachland or land booked out, and in that case the terms of tenure varied. The people settling down on these terms formed themselves into political self-governing societies. Of these, the unit was the township, a rural division of varying limits surrounded by the tun or quick-set hedge. A cluster of townships formed the hundred, and a cluster of hundreds the shire. Each of these had their separate courts. In the court of the township, all the freemen of the township had a right to sit, and there their elected representative, the town reeve, settled their petty disputes, collected their contributions to the revenue, and summoned the militia when necessary. In the court of the hundred, the several townships of which the hundred was formed were represented by their parish priest, their reeve, the lords of lands, and four elected men. Its presiding magistrate was the hundred man, elected in the hundred court. But the judges were at first the whole body of the suitors, and subsequently a representative body of twelve men, capable of declaring the law, 
who, for convenience sake, were entrusted with the judicial business of the hundred. Here more important disputes were settled. Theoretically, every suit began here, and an appeal lay to the Shire Court. The hundred men led the hundred to the militia, and the hundred formed the basis of assessment for taxation. The Shire was probably originally the sub-kingdom, and the Shire Court the court or gamote of that sub-kingdom. But as the separate kingdoms became united, the Shire became a division of the kingdom, a collection of hundreds, and the Shire Court the highest and most important of the local courts. Its suitors were the same as those of the hundred courts which fell within the Shire. Its officers were the alderman, the sheriff, Shire Reeve, and the bishop. Of these, the aldermen represented the old sub-king, who, as the sub-kingdoms were gradually united, became a national officer. He was appointed by the king and Witangamote, and had the command of the whole militia of the shire. The sheriff in practice was always nominated by the king, and was his judicial and fiscal officer, collecting the royal revenues and presiding in the court. The bishop, sitting with the other two, decided questions of ecclesiastical law. The judges, as was universally the case in these local courts, were not the officers, but all the suitors to the court, that is, all who had a right to sit there. Here, however, as in the hundred court, the office of judges was subsequently limited to certain representative men, often twelve in number. The ecclesiastical divisions of the country nearly resembled the political. The parish was identical with the township, the bishopric with the shire, and the ecclesiastical and political organization borrowed much from one another. It was in the shire court that all important cases, civil and criminal, were decided. An appeal lay from the inferior courts to this court, while from the shire court the appeal lay to the king and the Witangamote. In civil matters, it settled disputes and witnessed the transfers of land. But the most important part of its jurisdiction was the criminal. Let us then suppose the offender caught and follow him to his trial. His judges, observe, are the freemen of the district assembled in their own folk moat, or later, the twelve representative men. The aldermen, sheriff, and bishop are only officers of the court. They preside over it, and the sheriff sees the law executed, but they do not judge the accused. Here, then, in the very origin of our history, we have the right of every Englishman to be tried by his peers. Now the accused might be presented for trial by the judgment of the hundred court. In that case he was looked upon as one convicted by common opinion and was judged accordingly. He might indeed appeal to the ordeal, a form of trial in which the accused, appealing to the judgment of God, walked across red-hot bars of iron or was thrown into water. But even here, if he escaped unhurt, he was still considered a bad character, and though relieved from greater punishment had to fly the realm. But next, he might be accused by a private individual— in that case he was allowed to bring witnesses called compurgators, people who swore to the truth of his oath, and thus attested the respectable character of the accused, 
and purged him from the imputations cast upon him. Now if the accused could bring enough of these compurgators to balance the evidence of the other side, he would be acquitted, and in considering the question, the popular judges estimated the weight of each compurgator by his rank. Thus an earl's word would be as valuable as that of six churls, and an alderman's evidence might outweigh that of a whole township. No doubt this was a rough and ready way of administering justice, and there may have been a temptation to get rid by this means of an unpopular man. But at least the question of guilt or innocence was left to those who were most likely to know the probabilities of the case from a man's antecedents. Finally, if a man could not bring sufficient compurgation, he might go to the ordeal, and if he passed that safely, would be considered acquitted by the direct interposition of God. Punishment generally took the form of pecuniary fines, that of death being unknown except in cases of treason, sacrilege, witchcraft, and theft where the thief was caught in the act. Injury to life and limb was compounded for by the vergilt, paid to the injured man or to his family in case of death, and the vitgilt, or fine to the state. The vergilt of each man was arranged on a sliding scale according to his rank, that of an earl being greater than that of a churl, and so on. The system of police bore the same local character which we have seen so strongly developed in the Anglo-Saxon institutions. It was based upon the idea of mutual responsibility. For this purpose, the hundreds were divided into tithings, and by a law of canutes, everyone was bound to belong to a tithing, while by the laws of Edgar, every landless man was forced to have a lord to answer for him in the courts, and every man a surety to answer for him if he were absent when required. Such was the local and judicial organization of the Anglo-Saxon institutions in their earliest form. But before the Norman conquest, several modifications had occurred. These will best be summed up under the heads 1. Growth of Thaneship 2. Rise of Territorial Jurisdiction 3. Growth of towns or burrs. 1. Growth of thaneship. Side by side with the democratic constitution of all German tribes, there had existed a peculiar institution known as the comitatus. Each alderman or king was allowed to collect around him a body of personal followers called his gesiths, or his thanes, representing a condition of things not unlike that described in the Homeric poems, where each chief has a following of personal attendants, called his etairoi or companions. These warriors were bound to their lord by the closest ties of personal dependence, and after the conquest received grants, either from the undivided folkland which remained over after the freemen had received their share, or on the domains of the alderman or king. These thanes might be churls or earls themselves, holding lands of their own, or might have no freehold of their own. In either case, they were at first looked upon as an inferior class by the independent earls and churls. But in time, as the power of the king increased, they began to borrow dignity from his advance. In times of war, such nobles by service, forming chiefly a military class, became the natural leaders. Their privileges, too, were increased by the royal grants. 
From them the king chose his officers, his aldermen, sheriffs, and even bishops, and thus a class of nobility by service arose, which in the end superseded entirely the nobility by birth. The custom once began, earls and churls pressed into the service of the king, the alderman now falling back into a national officer, surrounded himself with thanes, and the bishops and king's thanes followed suit. Then the earls and churls abandoning their independence, which day by day became more precarious, made haste to commend themselves to some lord, and in return for the commendation received the benefit of security. Meanwhile, a property qualification became an essential requirement for the position of a thane, who thus assumed a territorial rather than a personal character. Finally, under Athelstan, the principle of lordship became compulsory. Everyone was bound to attach himself to some lord, and the lordless man was looked upon as an outlaw. Under these influences, the classes of earl and churl entirely passed away. The class of earls merged with that of thane, a term which now became equivalent to noble or gentle, while the churls either became thanes or were degraded into a semi-servile class. Thus, thaneship at the time of the Norman conquest had become the central institution of the state, and the twofold rank of earl and churl was lost in that of thane. 2. Rise of Territorial Jurisdiction At the first settlement of the English, the greater lords had enjoyed in some cases independent jurisdiction. That is to say, where a township lay on their property, although the constitution was the same as in the free township, the reeve was appointed by them, and they enjoyed the privileges and undertook the duties which elsewhere belonged to the freeholders. Such townships virtually formed manors, though the name itself is of Norman origin. And as the principle of thaneship grew, these jurisdictions increased, partly by royal grants, partly by commendation of whole townships to a neighboring thane. Gradually by the grant of sack, jurisdiction in matters of dispute, and soak, the right of holding courts for their personal and territorial dependence, the thanes gained exemption from the jurisdiction of the hundred court, though still subject to that of the shire, and the payments formerly due to the hundred court were now made to the thane. Thus their territorial jurisdiction rapidly increased, and the idea of possession of land and jurisdiction went hand in hand, these private jurisdictions encroaching largely upon the popular courts. Meanwhile, the jurisdiction of the king increased, from being merely the hearer of appeals in the Witangamote, he began to be looked upon as the origin of all justice. The number of pleas reserved to the crown, crown pleas, increased, and these were judged by the royal officers in the local courts. Lastly, about the time of Canute, the king in some cases delegated his powers to some great landowner, who thus became the superior judicial official in his district, superintended the popular courts, and usurped their rights. From all these causes the lower popular courts of township and hundred decreased in influence 
while the manorial courts became more and more important and threatened at the time of the Norman conquest, soon to supersede them entirely. 3. Growth of Burrs. The growth of Burrs tended to the same end. Originally, the Anglo-Saxons were not fond of municipal life and neglected any remains of Roman organization which may have survived among the British after the Roman occupation. The township, it must be remembered, being in no sense a town as we should call it, but a rural subdivision of the free community. But in time the villages grew, the smaller burrs became a kind of civic township, with their borough moat corresponding to the rural township court, the larger comprising a collection of townships, each with their separate borough moat, gained an organization similar to that of the hundred, with their ward moat or civic hundred court. These larger towns, standing apart from the neighboring hundred, would enjoy certain rights of jurisdiction independent of the hundred, but subject to the shire court, and in some cases paid a composition by which they gained immunity from arbitrary exactions. By the time of the conquest, therefore, there existed the court of the township, manorial courts, and the borough courts. Above these, the hundred court, from the jurisdiction of which the two latter had, perhaps, to some extent, emancipated themselves, and above all, the shire court, to which they all were subject, and to which the appeal lay. The local government stopped at the shire court. The central was entrusted to the Witangamote. The institution of this assembly is probably due to a somewhat later date, after the kingdom had been consolidated and the power of the king established. It was therefore the creation of royalty, and not a representative assembly. On great occasions, indeed, the Witangamote was attended by a concourse of people to whom its decision was announced, and who by their applause were supposed to give the national assent. But none had any right to sit or enjoyed any deliberative vote, except the councillors of the king, the bishops, the aldermen, and some of the greater or king's thanes. The powers assumed by this body were, in theory, at least very extensive. It was the supreme legislative and deliberative assembly of the kingdom, and the court of final appeal in judicial matters. With the king, it could do anything, and without it, nothing of importance could be done. The king, with its counsel and consent, passed laws ecclesiastical as well as civil, levied taxes, made grants out of the folkland, deliberated on peace or war, elected bishops and aldermen, and carried on the whole machinery of government. It even claimed and exercised the right of electing and deposing the king, though the election was by custom confined to the royal family, with the presumption in favor of the representative of the eldest branch, if of fit age and character to govern, and in later times at least, the nomination of the dying king was held to have considerable weight. Still, in the exceptional cases of Canute and his sons, Harold Harefoot and Hartha Canute, and of Harold, the Witan even departed from the royal line. The constitutional fabric was crowned by the king himself. From the position of mere leader of his tribe in peace and war, 
the representative of his people, he had, by the gradual consolidation of the kingdoms into one, gained a constitutional and territorial position. He was no longer king of the West Saxons, but king of England. He enjoyed considerable revenues and had a large private domain, which in those days, when the expenses of government were small, owing to the development of local organization, made him almost entirely independent of the Witan for money. He was the supreme executive officer of the realm, and all paid him personal allegiance, while in his circuits he superseded by his presence the powers of all the local courts. Moreover, as we draw near the Norman conquest, we find his powers steadily increasing. The Witan daily became a narrower body, more and more the mere officers of royalty, before which their powers faded. The Folkland was now considered as the king's royal domain, and practically he disposed of it as he would. The growth of thaneship added to his personal influence. His jurisdiction grew by the multiplication of pleas of the crown, and by the extension of the idea that all offenses were violations of his, the king's, peace, and with the development of the territorial idea, he gradually became the lord of his people and their land. The question now arises, did feudalism exist in England before the Norman conquest? From this sketch it will be seen that many of its germs at least were there. The personal tie was to be found in the relation of lord to thane, and the thane paid service to his lord, especially his heriot or gift of the best horse or suit of armor on his death. Even land was sometimes held on the terms of military service. The possession of land had become a necessary qualification for nobility and freedom. Territorial jurisdiction had in many cases arisen, and the manorial courts were very similar to those of the feudal system, while the king had become the lord of the land of the nation. But continental feudalism had not as yet arisen. Continental feudalism has been defined as a complete organization of society through the medium of land tenure, in which from the king to the landowner all are bound together by obligation of service and defense. Government and jurisdiction were based upon this system, and whilst the lord exercised jurisdiction over his tenants, he was considered the lord of the land which they held of him. Hence, the main distinction between that system and the Anglo-Saxon lay in these points. 1. Although when Canute divided England into four great earldoms, he introduced a system very similar to feudal government, feudal government proper never existed. The official magistrates had not become entirely hereditary. The aldermen did not enjoy fiscal, legislative, and judicial independence, as the feudal nobles did abroad. The local courts of the shire, hundred, and township still existed, and the former were supreme even over manorial courts within the shire. Nor was the central government organized on feudal principles, nor the Wittengemot in any sense a feudal court. 2. Although the personal tie was there, the real one was not. That is, the land had not become the tie or bond between the king and his people, 
or between lord and thane. Though all were obliged to have some lord, they could choose their lord. And if they held lands of him, this did not form the tie between them, but the personal commendation. And many held no land of their lord, but possessed lands of their own. Lastly, many landowners enjoyed territorial jurisdiction, but it extended over men whose lands were in no sense held of them. But if feudalism did not exist, it was on the point of arising, and but for the Norman conquest would probably have been developed as it was abroad. End of section 18